But I think the main idea there, which I take, and I think it's a crucial idea, that we need at a political level to accept different ways of coming to power as giving legitimacy to the interlock. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. A few days ago, the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado has disqualified Donald Trump from running for the 2024 presidential election, removing his name from the primary ballots in the state. Now, as listeners to this podcast will know, I consider Donald Trump to be a serious threat to democratic institutions in the United States. And I'm deeply concerned about the fact that he is currently beating Joe Biden in head-to-head polls for the upcoming election. We are in a slow-moving train wreck in which we are watching as the accident is about to unfold and nobody seems to be doing anything to avert the collision. I'm deeply concerned about what will happen over the course of this coming year. So you might think that I would cheer on the Supreme Court of Colorado. And yet I worry that this is not going to help us contain the threat of Donald Trump. This is most obviously the case because the legal theory that was used to disqualify Donald Trump is rather dubious. Seven out of seven of the judges in Colorado were dominated by Democrats, and yet it was a close ruling with four judges to three. By all accounts, it is very likely that the Supreme Court will reverse what happened in Colorado, which will only add to our social polarization, with commentators on the left sure to claim that the Supreme Court is illegitimate, just as many people on the right are currently claiming that judges nominated by Democrats are illegitimate. More broadly, I simply don't think that you can meet a political threat like Donald Trump with judicial means. We have seen in many democracies around the world that attempts to use constitutional maneuvers or court judgments in order to contain populist movements have virtually always failed. They have allowed populists to portray themselves as martyrs, and even when they were excluded from the ballots, they would nominate stand-ins. Even if something like the court ruling in Colorado were to be upheld, we would likely end up with somebody like Donald Trump Jr. in his father's place. We would end up with legislatures in Republican-controlled states, removing Democrats like Joe Biden from presidential ballots. We would end up with even more Americans deeply mistrusting their political institutions. The only real way to avert the threat that Donald Trump and his brand of 
populism pose to the country is what it has been for the last seven years, to build a political coalition that can sufficiently appeal to the many Americans who do not like Donald Trump, who reject his politics, something that a clear majority of registered voters in the United States do. We need to beat populism at the ballot box, as voters have done in the last years in Poland, in Brazil, and yes, in 2020, in the United States. My guest today is Branko Milanovic. Branko is a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. He was a senior economist at the World Bank for a long time, and he's one of the most influential writers about globalization. He made his name in part by publishing what came to be known as the Elephant Curve, but he's just one of the most idiosyncratic, interesting, insightful thinkers about the intersection between politics and economics. I'm afraid to say we may have geeked out a little bit for parts of this conversation, but we covered everything from how to think about globalization, uh, whether it has been good or bad, and whether it has ended up being seen as a negative for reasons that are very different from what its original critics 20, 30 years ago would have warned about. We talked about the way in which globalization has ended up changing geopolitics and the balance of power between the West and Eastern countries. And I tried to push Branko to explain to me his skepticism, both about Western foreign policy and perhaps about the notion of philosophical liberalism more broadly. Along the way, we touched on everything from Benjamin Constant to Hannah Arendt to John Rawls. I hope you have patience for our geeking out and enjoy the conversation. Branko Milanovic, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be there and to see you and to have a chance to have a nice chat. I want to start talking about some of the obvious topics given your work, which is economics and globalization. But then I kind of am hoping for a deeper conversation about democracy and politics and liberalism. But to start off with, because of this famous elephant graph that you published, you came to be seen by many as a kind of critic of globalization. But that, I think, is rather too simplistic an interpretation of, of who you are. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what the elephant curve was, how it fits into your work, and why your relationship to globalization is a little bit more complicated than it might have suggested. Thank you so much, Yasha. Let me start a little bit with the origin of the graph. First of all, the graph is simply numbers. So the question is the interpretation. Having produced the graph doesn't mean that I espouse one view or not. So let's start with the, with the origin. I was, of course, working on, uh, on global inequality, I think, since the, my first paper was in 1990. So it was a long time ago. And then gradually, I, of course, developed more data. And then I started actually thinking of putting them all together and then showing what has happened over a 20-year period. It's actually harder. In those days, it was even harder than it is today. 
did I have a prior? I did have a little bit of a prior, and I know it because with the first time when I did that graph, and it was actually done on that first time in dollars, not in PPP dollars, as it was done later. And I discovered that particular shame that was later called elephant, and it was somebody else who, who gave it this name that came famous afterwards. I felt immediately, well, this is exactly what I knew was happening and what everybody else knows. And it was the striking moment where the data validate your not fully explicit prior. So that's why I remember it well. And I think the reason why the graph sort of took a life of its own was that it essentially confirmed what many people did know, which is that the middle classes of the rich world have not done very well, and they have not done well compared to the Chinese, essentially, or Asians, who are poorer than them, and they have not done very well compared to their own co-citizens who were richer. And that was the sort of being in the middle between your own domestic top 1%, but not only that, I mean, it was much broader than 1%, and on the other hand, being exposed to potential competition from people from poorer countries who are willing maybe to do your job at much less. Just to explain the graph for people who may not have seen it, or who may not recall it, I'm not a very visual person, so I always have slight problems picturing the elephant graph, but the idea here is an elephant with its trunk raised up high. And so as you're going from the lowest part of the income distribution, you see sort of a torso of the elephant. It's actually rising a little bit. The lower middle class and the middle class globally have actually had some income growth over the course of the previous decades when the graph was published. Then there's this sort of fall off where you imagine the head of the elephant pointing downwards, right? And so once you get to the 70th, 80th percentile of a global income distribution, there's basically no increase. And this, of course, might be a steel worker in Michigan or that kind of member of the global upper middle class, because even the relatively poorer members of the United States or Western European countries are in the upper middle globally. And then as you get towards the trunk, as you get towards the global rich, well, there's a huge increase in wealth that we've seen among the top five, top 1% globally. That's where sort of the exponential rise of a trunk on the right of the elephant sits. Is that roughly speaking right, Branko? Oh, no, no, it's absolutely correct. You know, what is really displayed on a graph is that uh, on a horizontal axis, you go from the poorest people in the world to the richest. Let's suppose middle classes of the Western world are around the 75th, 70th, 80th percentile. And on the left of them, poorer of them, are again, broadly speaking, Chinese, Indonesians, and others, who are actually growing relatively fast. The right of them, meaning richer than them, are many people from the Western countries at the top who are not only richer, but also growing faster. So it was really this illustration of being squeezed between the two large groups that are growing faster than you, that, of course, produced political interest for the graph. And, of course, played, played into what people... In tacitly or, you know, new. You know, every, I have to say this, they are more general, but I think the most powerful uh, stories or the results that we can produce in economics or politics or any other 
are when the data or information that you provide highlights or validates that you might implicitly already believe. Because that's really the powerful stuff. If I show something that nobody believes, maybe it is going to take 20 years so that people start believing that. But if you show something that people feel is true and that is being validated by the data, that's quite powerful. What you're saying is interesting. I have a sort of side observation, which is that something similar is true for political gaffes. I think people sometimes think that a political gaffe is damaging to a politician because they come across as saying something they didn't really mean and then people penalize them for that false impression. I think that's rarely the case. I think political gaffes end up really damaging when they confirm an impression that people already had of a politician and then it crystallizes them. Oh, you know, Hillary Clinton talks about the basket of deplorables. I always thought whether that's true or not, but Hillary Clinton looks down on ordinary people. So it becomes sort of a proof in the pudding. So the elephant curve, as you put it, confirmed the hunch that you had from knowing the data very well, but also the hunch that a broader public had, that a lot of people are getting screwed over by globalization. Even at the time, I guess what's interesting is that, especially in the West, People were thinking, well, steelworkers in Michigan are getting screwed, but they weren't really looking at the lower half of the elephant curve, which was rather better news, right? The 70th, 80th global percentile was in a uniquely bad position on that graph. Once you went back to the 50th, 40th, 30th percentile of the global income distribution, you were seeing significant gains even at the time. You know, it is absolutely true, you know. Let me just sort of slightly fast forward to the present time prior to COVID, because COVID really is a very special period, so we can talk about that later, because it was not short, I mean, lasted short time, but really messed up things quite significantly. But moving from 2008, when the, the elephant chart ends, to 2018 or 19, when COVID begins, what was interesting, and which I think, how should I say, maybe even made the malaise indirectly, the malaise of the Western middle classes wars was what happens when other people, like the proverbial Chinese, catch up with you and overtake you. In, your, in the global income ranking, your position declines. Now, that does not mean that people in the U.S. or Italy, and I'll come to Italy in a moment because it's the most dramatic case, feel that they have gone down. They, you know, people don't know. You don't probably know what percentile in the world distribution you are. I can actually guess where I am, but many people don't. But you would notice if you go down in that ranking that there are certain goods that are actually less accessible to you, internationally priced goods that you cannot afford anymore. And moreover, there is one issue which more recently I have found when I talk about that, and it is a fact that if you go 200 years back, and of course, these are really lots of that is a guesswork, but we can at least make some estimates. The West had always been alone in that top 20%. So it's always the West. Now, Japan came later, but essentially, that's the West. Well, now the West is not alone there because there are people from Asia entering that 20%. And I think when you put it like that, you immediately see the economic and geopolitical implications of all of that. And you see that it is really a rather dramatic change in relative economic power. So these uh, individual incomes that are there are really representative of they are basically representations of a much more profound economic change that we observe. And I think that was part why this 
pictures, if not influential, have become known, again, because they play and they show something that I think is, in, is an important fact. So there's two very different issues here. One is whether globalization has, in fact, been bad in absolute terms for the West, whether it's true that the sort of working class, the lower middle class in the West has, on balance, been harmed by it. And then there's the second question, which is more geopolitical and about the relative packing order of different countries. So let's start on the first point and then get back to the, to the second one. One of the interesting things about the influence of the elephant curve is that it was discussed a lot during the 2010s. And it was discussed a lot, for example, after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, but as you just mentioned, the data only went up to 2008. And when you updated the data later on, and I think extended it to 2018, the elephant shape was no longer there. And in fact, the income gains were at that point much more evenly distributed, not perfectly evenly distributed, of course, but that particular trough was no longer there, which is to say that suddenly the 80th percentile of the income distribution was also profiting. And you saw much more strongly that the global poor had in fact been lifted up by globalization. So the overall picture, extending simply the data on the same graph, came to look a lot more positive. So I was wondering, uh, and I wrote an article about this in The Atlantic, as you may know, whether this is part of a broader revaluation of the economic pessimism of the 2010s. Those sort of three data points that went viral in the 2010s and that added up to a very pessimistic view of the economy. And that was your observation of the elephant curve, the observation by CARD and others that incomes had really stagnated for American workers. And finally, of course, the claim by Thomas Piketty that the returns to capital were higher than the returns to labor and therefore inequality would continue to increase. And today, you have updated your elephant curve and been very open about the fact that it now tells a less pessimistic story. CART has shown that over the last few years, the lowest income earners have actually had the highest income gains in the United States because of a tight labor market. And Piketty's work has been subject to a lot of criticism from economists. He hasn't exactly revised the story, for he has a longer-run economic history that sounds a lot more optimistic as well that he's published since. So it feels like these kind of three apostles of economic pessimism have slightly revised their story. So just looking not at the ordinal ranking of the West relative to other countries, but at the economic trajectory of the United States, of France, of whatever other Western countries, is there now more reason to be optimistic about ongoing income growth throughout the income distribution than there seemed to be 10 years ago? Okay, let, let me break your question into two parts. First, let me say something about uh, simply the definitions there. When we spoke of uh, lack of economic growth or sufficient economic growth at that part of the elephant where the middle classes were, we of course meant that the growth was low, but we never meant, and actually this was not the case, that the growth was negative. So they were absolute gains. And actually, some of these absolute gains were even higher than the Chinese middle-class absolute gains because the starting point of the Western classes was much higher. So if you have much higher income, 1% increase, maybe in absolute terms more than the guy who makes 5% growth, but of course has an income which is one-fifth of yours. So that we should be clear that we are talking about the relativities. Many people actually have 
focused on the absolutes, and of course the absolutes tell some different story, although in economics we just tend the income distribution to favor, you know, for various reasons, but to favor really percentage increases. So that's one thing. Secondly, what you said for the evolution afterwards, especially evolution more recently, yes, the situation has changed. First of all, that really trend had never recovered after the financial crisis rates of growth that got before. We have also to keep in mind that the top 1% globally is one half composed of Americans because 11% of Americans are in the global top 1%. And the very top of the U.S. income distribution was affected during the financial crisis. So they went down. Actually, some of them, the top 1% actually had a negative growth. And then they recovered. But if you do the endpoint to endpoint, the rate of growth was no longer, I think it was 6 or 7 before, and it became 2% after the crisis. So that was really a significant change. The Chinese, the middle class there, moved really into the uh, parts of the distribution, as I was saying before, that tended to be entirely Western. So that has been a change, but it's a change in the pecking order. That's a change in ranking. This is not a change that you can maybe experience very sort of clear. Now, the last part of your question, and that's a more political and more perceptive, has globalization or have things change economically sufficiently for the Western middle classes that we can say, well, forget the, the rest, what happened. I think obviously there are significant improvements, especially in the U.S. more most recently. They are short term because, you know, we don't know what will happen next. But the part with which I'm not very happy, and maybe it will be the next part of the conversation, is that it actually happened on the back of less globalization. So that's the interesting part, is that actually we have had a sort of a backlash, not huge, but significant backlash against globalization in the West, which is now accompanied with seemingly, not seeming in the sense that it, it is real, but we don't know if it would last, with an improvement in an economic situation. So that's the big question. So is it really uh, are we now going to go against globalization because it seems that the that lack less of globalization may be good for the middle class or the working class in rich Western countries? So I think that's a very interesting question, which to some extent is the continuation of the previous point in the very beginning, where we had the high globalization period associated with the lack of growth of those groups. So that's very interesting. So I guess I have two questions about that aspect of it. First of all, is there a causal link there? Is it that some of the more skeptical ideas about globalization that have arisen in the last few years have actually led to policies that then increased the incomes of lower income earners in the United States and Western Europe? Or is there simply a temporal coincidence here? Is it causation or correlation? And secondly, perhaps more importantly, how much have we moved away from globalization? I've heard very different interpretations here, right? Some people say that the sort of whole paradigm of globalization has now gotten out of a window. We live in a new world. We sort of are entering into a new economic era. And then other people are saying, well, look, I mean, there's been a little bit of nearshoring, you know, a few adaptations to COVID and the sort of deeper confrontation between the United States and China. But really, cross-border trade continues to go up and all kind of important metrics we are still firmly in the age of globalization. So help us puzzle through these very different points of view on this issue. 
No, no, you, you actually summarized it very well. But I do think that there was a, an ideological change. If you take the period between, uh, let's start with the, with the fall of communism and until 2008, that was a period what I call high globalization, where ideologically globalization was seen really not only as a policy to go by everybody, but really a panacea for many things. Reduction of global poverty, high rate of growth, not only in poorer countries, but of course rich countries are interested in themselves primarily. So high growth in, in rich countries and even the effects that became later better known of insufficient growth among, I suppose, working class in the U.S., were sort of shrugged off as part of, you know, cost of globalization. So there was an ideological prior in favor of globalization. More of it was better than less. I think that gradually we have had a change for all the reasons that we already discussed, which happened with the global financial crisis. But then, and that part, that is the part that really doesn't make me happy. We have an ideological change, which is now driven by essentially geopolitical reasons. So it's now not again not a claim that globalization is somehow bad per se, but that globalization's gains were uneven in the geopolitical sense. In other words, China got too much, U.S. got too little. We are no longer talking only about U.S. working class and the people in China as such. We are talking about the entities called China and the United States. And that really is the introduction of really very strong geopolitics. And when that happens, and I think there is very little doubt that ideologically it has happened, then, you know, many things are open in the future. We do have, obviously, the precedent of World War I, where the similar competition led eventually to the war. So I think we do have memories of things which didn't turn out very well. And that is something that I think ideologically makes uh, first happen, and that's something that I don't find particularly attractive. It occurs to me that in a strange way, the warnings about globalization that I grew up with turned out to be exactly 180 degrees off, which is to say that, you know, I went to university in the early 2000s and it was a time of deep debate about globalization. But broadly speaking, the debate was a little bit that it might be bad for, you know, workers in Western countries, mostly that it would be very bad for countries around the world. I mean, the real criticisms of globalization with WTO was that they were a ploy to make China and India and other countries vassals of the United States and the European Union, and they would impoverish those countries and exploit them. And when I look at the complaints about globalization as you're presenting them now, it seems to be that actually, you know what? In the end, workers seem to have done better than we expected, especially between 2008 and 2018. They have gotten some gains from it. Perhaps we've adapted our policies a little bit to facilitate that. But now the Western nervousness about globalization is not the sort of activist concern of 20 years ago that they're going to impoverish China and India. It's that they were the vehicle that allowed those countries to breach the global 20% of the income distribution in, in parts of the population to have a much higher comparative share of global GDP and therefore to have much more geopolitical power. So it's sort of a standing 
the concerns about globalization that people had exactly on, on their head. It's absolutely true. I have, however, to say that those concerns that you mentioned that the left wing had in the early 2000s were not concerns which were really shared by very broad, uh, how should I say, population, nor even in the intellectual community, well, economists. I think economists tended to be very, what has now become the term of abuse, neoliberal. So indeed, there was this a group that was very left-wing, and then if they, there are still people who say that globalization worked against the uh, masses in the third world, but really it is not true. There are obviously some countries that didn't catch up. There are countries that actually even fall behind, Africa being one example, and I'm sort of somewhat sort of simplifying matters, but certainly Africa did not converge, the 55 countries, so they are different, but they didn't converge. But Asia did actually very well, exceptionally well. So yes, it is true that the complaints that were voiced then by the segment of the economic opinion, which is very much on the left, had been uh, proven wrong by the very fact that globalization is actually popular in those countries. It has led to the increase in real wages. It has led, of course, to very difficult working conditions, but it is also true that when you have development of a country, that development happens because people are pushed towards sometimes, you know, 12 hours or 15 hours a day. That has happened before during the Industrial Revolution in England, so it's not kind of a total novelty. And many of them actually are very willing to do that because they want to earn more money to save, send their kids to school and so forth. So it was uh, overall popular in Asia, and it was successful, again, with all the caveats, but it was considered as a success case. And now we have a situation that actually Asia is kind of a defending globalization, not only China, but of course other countries that now, of course, find also additional reasons to defend, because some of them, as you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, to some extent, are beneficiary of the more tense relationship between the U.S. and China. So let's speak to the geopolitical stakes here. Basically, since the Industrial Revolution, Western countries have held global power based on the fact that they were economically outcompeting the rest of the world and then obviously exploiting the resources through the military means that they were able to do in part because of the economic production base and so on, right? So to be approaching an era in which the balance of economic might in the world is much more balanced, really does feel like a very significant historical change, like a transformation of basic facts about global political and military power that held for 200 years are now giving way. How does that illuminate the politics of our moment, and how should we think about that? Clearly, there's something positive about that. There's certainly something very positive about Asia's rise more broadly, including the much better lives that billions of people are able to lead. For me, as somebody who, I guess, comes from Western countries, from you as somebody who comes more or less from Western countries, I don't know exactly how you would describe yourself in that. There is also something concerning about that, in particular, when you see that the biggest economic competitor to the West at the moment is China, that's ruled by a very authoritarian communist party. How do we think about this 
new era in geopolitics that is being brought about by globalization? You know, actually, I see no contemporaries are often, how should I say, often have problem thinking or visualizing their world simply because they don't know, to use Hegelian term, what the becoming will be. You know, the world is changing, but obviously to the contemporary, it can always go in different directions. And as you know, when you read the best works in history, I think the best historians are the historians that tell you the story whose outcome you know, but they tell it so well from the point of view of the contemporary that you, when you read a history book, you are actually in a dilemma. Will really the history work this way? So that's how we feel now. Now, having said, actually, talking about 200 years, we have, as, as of course you know, we have to make some, some periods between brackets because, first of all, World War I and World War II were essentially competition within the Western world because of a new competitor that was Germany. It was part of the West, but obviously it led to massive wars. And then there was a second competitor, which was the Soviet Union, which was a significant competitor, especially, I would say, from 1945 to probably mid-60s. So there were big before competitions within with the Western camp and on, if you take the Soviet Union as being on the edges of that camp. Well, now the situation is different because there is a very big country, a country that used to be, when I was young, right, uh, how should I say, obviously a significant country, but economically seen as very uh, poor, obviously, and powerless in some extent. I was recently thinking, like, if you were to count the number of articles that Wall Street Journal was writing about China in the 1970s, you probably would have one article every month. And nowadays, when I read the Wall Street Journal, I'm actually reading mostly about the Chinese economy. Actually, after the U.S. economy, there is no doubt that the only economy that was consistently sort of reported on a daily basis is the Chinese economy. So for somebody who remembers that past, it's an incredible change. And we are living through this change now. I think these are the facts. We don't know how it would evolve. So that's why we are confused, obviously, like every contemporary. But in that sense, I'm not, one sense, I'm not pessimistic. I believe that the more equal distribution of economic output around the world, and I also believe that the, the different uh, powers which exist ultimately could lead to a much more peaceful environment. And I will stop there just by giving, and I cannot do it verbatim, I've used that before, but I have a beautiful quote from Adam Smith that is really not known, where he mentions that, written 1776, that he mentions that huge superiority, technological superiority that Europe had, of course, was reflected in the military superiority, and enable Europeans to repress, and I cannot remember the word, but actually really basically misfit the rest of the world. And then he believes that through free exchange and free trade, technological developments of the different parts of the world will become more equal, and that would prevent the war through basically mutual fear of two relatively equal powers going to war with each other. So it's really balance of power in one short paragraph where actually trade 
is seen as leading to peace, not the way that Montesquieu thought of, like, basically what he called the uh, softening of uh, behavior and mutual interest. The trade is leading to peace through mutual fear, if you want to say, of destruction, of where, I mean, those days it was not destruction, but war, that would actually make the two sides more respectful of each other. So it's, I think, a very interesting insight that Adam Smith had, as I said, in the end of the 18th century. Oh, that's fascinating. So for those who are less up on the 18th century intellectual history than Branko is, I guess the idea is here that the way that perhaps most thinkers at the time made the argument for the peace-inducing qualities of trade, or at least the way that it's usually interpreted and taught today, it is more about the softening of Morris and the ability, as something like Benjamin Constant would argue a little bit later in the liberty of the ancients compared to that of the moderns, to attain what others might have sought through warlike means, through the purposes of And some of that theory supposedly has worked out in the democratic peace theory and the fact that democracies don't tend to go to war with each other. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. But in other ways, we see that a world with many democracies still has many wars in it. And a world with a lot of trade can still have a lot of war in it. And it didn't stop its acceleration of international trade before World War I, did not stop World War I, and so on. This argument is a little bit different, which is that because you have trade, as I understand it, Branco, you end up with more economic equality. And economic equality can stop you from having war because you have to be afraid of your enemy. If you can win a war, or if you believe you can win a war, then that makes you tempted to engage in war. If you don't know who's going to win, then it's perhaps better to restrain from it. How does the theory of a Thucydides trap play into this? So my understanding of this is that a set of international relations scholars are very worried that when there's a declining power and a rising power, the declining power often has a reason to search a confrontation before the rising power has had chance to establish itself, or conversely, the, the rising power may want to pick a fight with a declining power in order to change the rules of a game and establish itself as the top dog. Is that sort of, do we have to get around that trap in order to get to that world of peace between equals, or do you not believe in the facilities trap as a concern? Well, of course, Yasha, you are now pushing me beyond my, my area of competence, you know. I know to kick it as trap, but I would like, uh, let me just go slightly back. Well, the reason why I quoted Adam Smith was because I found it interesting that the economist had actually two channels to see trade as the globalization thereby as an instrument for peace. The one that you mentioned, that was a standard one, is essentially trade as interdependence and trade as, um, as Montesquieu, as you said, which actually softening of the, of the moors and the ability to actually get goods through trade that, that you would otherwise have to, to go to war war. But the second channel, and that's where actually interesting Adam Smith rejoins the international relations, is the balance of power that comes from trade making technological development of the trading partners similar. So that a channel I found very appealing because it really sort of brings political economy and trade, 
brings together with international relations. Now, of course, the third issue is that the declining power, this is the moment to stop the rising power at the right moment. It's, I think, more political one, and uh, I think we can have a different views when, about the morality and the acceptance of such a thing, but obviously that's something that, that goes a little bit outside of economics, and uh, I would have maybe simply the views as like somewhat informed citizen, but not beyond that. So I do want to push you a little bit beyond economics, but not necessarily into the realm of international relations. So let me change my line of questioning for a moment. I think a lot of listeners to this podcast will think about a world in which there is genuine equality uh, of power between the West and countries like China with concern, not because they have any particular prejudices against China or not because we don't recognize that it's a wonderful and rich culture, but because it is ruled by the Communist Party and it's an authoritarian regime. My understanding or my sense is that you look forward to such a future rather more optimistically, not only because, as the quote you used implies, it might in fact be a peaceful future, which of course we should all wish for, but also because I think you view rather more critically uh, Western dominance of international affairs over the last decades, and perhaps more broadly, the project of liberalism. And as somebody who follows your really interesting, incisive writing on Substack, as well as having read a number of your books, I feel like I have a sense of that, but I never quite feel like I've gotten the argument from you in a nutshell about what the problem is with Western dominance and, and more specifically what the problem is with liberalism. So would you make the argument for me? Yeah, you're pushing me a little bit. I actually avoided making the argument too explicitly because uh, sometimes if you make it too explicit, maybe it becomes too strong, the form in which one makes it. So let me, since you push me, I will make it make a strong first, uh, put it in a strong form, and then I will come with caveats and the explanation, maybe somewhat historical explanation of that. To put it in a very strong form, I think that a lot of Western political concern, and I was going to say so-called concern, with democracy is just a different form of imperialism. It is basically an attempt to project own view of how political systems should be run to others, claiming a certain amount, significant amount, of moral superiority and not allowing others to choose political arrangements that they might seem fit. And to realize that, you just have to turn things around if there were similar attempts through think tanks, NGOs, political organizations, others, to actually change the Western political system that immediately gets labeled, as we know, interference in domestic affairs, interference in elections, spying. So there is a very strong asymmetric relationship there. So that was the strong statement. Now, if I want to unpack this statement, I would actually go historically to the end of the Cold War, where I think that sort of ideology 
got an incredible boost because it seemed to really not only fit, but to agree with people who have actually abandoned communism. And then it became sort of like an engine that tried to project itself to the rest of the world, to everybody, and essentially to have both ideological and political hegemony. So that would be my answer to your question. I actually think I would really have to go to the end of the Cold War, where also I think that U.S. in particular did not really accept to play anymore by the international rules, essentially by the U.N. rules, but created their own rules. And when we read today, the rules-based international order, honestly, I have no idea what it means because that is not codified, doesn't exist. These rules keep on changing depending on the situation. And they are put in the opposition to codified rules of the UN. I'm not saying that the codified rules of the UN had been accepted by the members between 45 and 1990, but at least we knew what they were. So these are, you know, maybe two-part answer to, to your question, but I tried to explain why I'm in favor of, in principle, well, we're not necessarily in favor of multiple political arrangements, but I believe that the world is too complex to have one arrangement. So let's put it like that. I'm not in favor of multiple arrangements as such. I'm simply observing that the world, in my opinion, is too complicated to have only one. So I have various objections bubbling up in my mind, but I'm very aware of a post you wrote recently on arguing with, I think, Stalinist nationalists and liberals, saying that liberals perhaps have the most subtle objections, but they basically are as stubborn and unresponsive to argument as anybody else. So I'm going to hold my instinct to put objections and argue back. Is this fundamentally a, a kind of a culturally relativist argument, or is it an argument against the importance of democracy or liberalism or liberal democracy or however exactly you want to put it within the Western hemisphere as well? Which is to say, would you say that you have a personal preference for living in a liberal democracy, but you simply recognize that other cultures work differently and people in other parts of the world may not share that preference? Or do you see the system critically as a citizen of countries that are themselves liberal democracies? Uh, I didn't understand the second part exactly, but uh, I, I did understand the first. I personally have a preference for living in a democratic society. But I fully acknowledge that other people in different parts of the world, for whatever reasons, and I don't think these reasons are necessarily reasons which will per pertain forever, but given history of certain societies and given the current situation and given the current leadership and given the political objectives of the current leadership, which are coming in a moment, maybe with respect to China, they don't feel that they are sort of unhappy and that they would they are actually satisfied with the type of political regime that they have. And I think imposing and telling them that they should not be happy I think it's really a, a way of ideological imperialism. 
And so that's that's what I'm sort of saying. That doesn't mean that, as I said, that these societies might evolve. You know, after all, people in pre-revolutionary France before the revolution were also quite happy with living in that system. And actually, since we are now also talking about my visions of inequality, the new book, you know, Kenet, who was the founder of the political economy, was a great proponent of the Chinese well, Chinese despotic system because he wrote a whole book about it. It's called Despotisme de la Chine because he believed that allied and monarchy plus uh, merit-based mandarinat, which actually he saw physiocrats are fulfilling that function in France, was the condition for the success of a country. So you cannot say, for example, that given the conditions of France then, Kenet was crazy. That, that was a logical sort of a structure that he had, and he believed that that's a, that political system was the best suited system for France. So that's what I mean. So if we now go and tell them now, look, guys, in France, pre-revolutionary France, well, you're just crazy because that system is really very bad. People might not believe it, or might not agree, actually, with you. So let me inch towards pushing back a little bit. Let's see how this goes. So I think that the piece where we certainly agree is that it is a bad idea to try and impose democracy at the barrel of a gun. And attempts to do so have failed in disastrous ways, in ways that probably should have been knowable in, in advance. Thankfully, I don't think there's a ton of appetite for continuing to do so going forward. I think there's a broader question about the ways in which it may or may not be conducive or counterproductive to democratic developments in other countries to fund local activist NGOs and democracy organizations and so on. I think at the very least, we need to acknowledge that it's dubious whether that has positive effects, as of course it's dubious whether economic development aid actually has positive effect on a country's economic growth. Trying to influence those organic local processes from the outside, even with the best of intentions, or even for seemingly pretty neutral goal like economic growth is just a very hard thing to get right. And so I acknowledge all of that. I guess there is one argument that does naturally spring to mind in response to what you were saying, which is that let people make their choice simplifies the situation a little bit, because it is a nature of democracy that people have some amount of choice. And you may say that the choice is not as real and as full as it appears, but they can choose who their political leader is. And in principle, they can vote for political representatives who will amend the constitution. And even in a system where the veto points are as extreme as they are in the United States, there is in principle a path from popular will to founding a communist party of the United States that's going to rule the country if that's what enough people vote for in enough elections to amend the constitution to enable that. That obviously is not true in countries that don't have those democratic institutions in which there is a popular will for democracy. It cannot express itself. Now, we might look at contemporary China and say, look, the grassroots desire for Western-style democracy seems to be pretty low. The country is open enough and has enough uh, of a culture of debate that, from my understanding, that appears to be true today. But that's rather different than saying that, you know, the Chinese people have chosen to be ruled by the CCP. I think that clearly would be overstating the case. So I guess how do we deal in this equation with the fact that outside of democracy, 
certain elites or certain power holders may have chosen the nature of a regime form, but you can't really say that the people of those countries have chosen that regime form. No, it's good that you push back because I'm going to push back now as well. Let me let me put it like this. I absolutely have no problem at all with us and other people discussing these issues. I don't even have problems with NGOs or think tanks pushing that point of view. It's, I think, totally legitimate. You know, different people uh, have different views. They actually would like to sort of have the rest of the world follow. That's a legitimate thing, totally. The illegitimate thing is when governments use that to actually explicitly attack, label, and disagree. And that's where I find, for example, and that's the current, we are now going back to the, our original discussion about the, some uh, setback to globalization. We see not only the US government, but the European Union in respect to China, essentially engaging in political lectures. I think that the relations between the states have to be based on mutual respect, non-interference, and all these other things that you know from the from the UN Charter, and economic relations have to be based on mutual interest. Now, whether a Luxembourg-based NGO or Paris-based NGO wants to have uh, relations with, I don't know, dissidents in China or have an organization that supports that the Nobel Prize winner, the literature Nobel Prize winner, be released from jail in China, I think it's legitimate. But it's not okay for the French officials or I'm using French as a sort of, could be some other country, to actually put that as a basic sort of part of their discourse and in exchange with China. So that, that is where I draw the difference. And to be very concrete, you know, when recently Blinken had a meeting with a Chinese counterpart, I think actually that was this famous meeting with a Chinese, um, he was from the Central Committee Party, in charge of foreign affairs. He was not foreign minister. He was, to some extent, maybe senior even to foreign minister. Uh, Blinken started actually by really giving a lecture on democracy, human rights, and all of that. And of course, afterwards, when he got a very strong response from the Chinese counterpart, he was totally at, at the sea. He actually could not reply anything. But that's a really, that was the part with which I think I don't agree. And that's what I called before really de facto Western hegemony that tries to be projected politically through the governments to the rest of the world. Uh, but the discussion between NGOs, between you and me, between other people, I think is totally legitimate. That's interesting. I guess I had a slightly different perception of how those debates tend to go. And perhaps your image of it and my image of it fit together into a more complex image. I know you're thinking of that meeting at Anchorage, where Blinken and Jake Sullivan met with the Chinese delegation. And I was struck by the fact, I perhaps I didn't see the initial, what you perceived as a lecture about human rights from, from Blinken. I was struck by the very muscular response from China in that meeting, basically accusing America of being racist, for example, and so on. And the response to that from the American side mostly seemed to be to acknowledge that America is a terrible, unjust, racist place, but then to say, at least we can criticize our own country. So I actually found the response from the American side to be sort of quite 
remarkably self-flagellating. But of course, when you look at the way that China tries to project its geopolitical power, it's in different ways. So China doesn't go to Germany and tells Germans that they're mistreating Syrian immigrants or to the United States and tells Americans about the sort of history of structural racism. So it's certainly willing to use those things for propagandistic purposes in a kind of tactical way, as I think they did in Anchorage. But contrary-wise, their red line is you cannot criticize our country, right? So they use very strong forms of economic pressure, for example, to undermine the freedom of speech of people within the United States to criticize the Chinese government by boycotting their employers and so on and so forth. Is it a matter of the sort of red lines being different for each of those countries and them trying to shape the behavior of the others? Because it certainly feels to me that sort of China's attempt to tell Hollywood what kind of movies it can make or to punish NBA franchises for things that the players or coaches say could be seen as imperialist or could be seen as an exercise of brute political power just as much as Lincoln holding some kind of speech about human rights. It is true, you know, definitely that economic, what is called economic coercion, is used by China. But of course, as you know, it is used maybe even on a bigger scale, or certainly on a bigger scale, by, by Western countries. If you just read the list of sanctions, that has now become part of like a very common news, like you will have sanctions practically every day on somebody. And I think currently, I think the U.S. Congress has, I think, actually read nine countries as countries on, on the sanction list. So the economic coercion is, is definitely made, I mean, it's done by many. But, uh, you know, to go again, just simply to reiterate what I said, I think it's uh, the, the direct governmental uh, lecturing or direct governmental implication that the other side is not legitimate is problematic and it leads really eventually to significant misunderstanding and potential conflict. And let me then again go here to another writer. It was John Rawls. As you know, in 1999, he wrote that slender book, which is called The the Law of Peoples. And in that book, the issue was then and it was reflected in the book, although the names are not called as such. But really, the question was the following. How can different political systems coexist by accepting legitimacy of the other side? In other words, if we do not accept legitimacy of the other system, then we basically have, a, how should I say, a conflict. Let's not call it a war, but a conflict. Rawls actually said, okay, can we design an international system where different types of uh, domestic political legitimacy are recognized by each side. In those days, he had essentially Islamic countries in mind, countries that do not have democratic governance, not only Saudi Arabia, but countries like, I suppose, Morocco, Jordan, countries that actually had some pluralistic uh, part, but where either the king is more powerful or the powerful, or the parliament is less powerful, how can they be accepted as legitimate governments? So that was the point of his book, and then he has the taxonomy of the different regimes. But I think the main idea there, which I take, and I think it's a crucial idea, that we need 
at a political level to accept different ways of coming to power as giving legitimacy to the interlocutor. Now, there could be some extreme ways of getting to power or extreme ways of repression that you really can say, okay, that really is something which is too much and there is no legitimacy. But I think that these are really extreme cases. There are, I think, many cases, again, to go back to the Jordan or the Moroccos of this world, and then to go to, to China and other countries, that we have to accept legitimacy of the interlocutor. And that, that's, for me, key point, because when we accept the legitimacy of the interlocutor, we then accept also that the interlocutor is defended, quote-unquote, by the rules of the United Nations, and that we have to observe it. So that would be my sort of, uh, how should I say, desideratum, that we find such uh, ability to accept legitimacy of differently selected leaders of the world. When I say leaders, I mean political systems, not necessarily individuals. That's very interesting. As I recall in, in Rose's Law of Peoples, he comes up with a few different basic categories of states. I may not get all of the labels of them right, but like one is sort of liberal states, basically, liberal peoples, liberal states, which have liberal democratic constitutions and so on and so forth, right? And then he has sort of various categories of countries that fall below that threshold. I think one was sort of burdened societies, so societies that just were so poor or in such a unfortunate geographic position that they didn't really have much agency and those sort of a little bit aside. And then I think he had sort of a couple of different basic categories of states. He has, I think, consultatives or consultative author, autocracies, but that was basically one of the categories. Right. So one of the categories was there's some method for, of consultation, right? It's not democratic, but there's some way in which the ruler listens to the interests or the demands of the society and therefore has certain forms of legitimacy. And I think this was the term was consultative. I think consultative authoritarianism or something like that, which has, uh, I, that's why I used actually the examples of Morocco or Jordan, because in those days, that was his, uh, he had in then in view, in view, in my opinion, much more than, than China. But I think the basic idea can be applied to, to, to China today. But then I think, as I recall, and Branko, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, he did also have a category of outlaw states. Yeah, yeah, he did. And I, actually, that, I don't want to criticize now, but that category was really fairly badly defined. And what was interesting in that category, actually, I criticized him in, in a, in a substack, I believe. That category was first not very clear, but even if it became clear, it was never mentioned if there is any duty of responsibility towards the people in the outlaw state. The outlaw state was very interesting because it's the only state, if I'm not mistaken, in the book, that people do not appear. In other words, in all these other cases, we are talking about people and whether they are ruled one way or another, or rule, but in outlaw state, there is no people. And that, I think, is a major drawback because you cannot... Uh, if there is an outlaw state, you cannot just say the people there, I really don't care about them. I would rather that they all disappear. So that, I think, is, is really not, um, not well explained. And let me just say also for the economic reasons and people who listen to us and would like to also to hear about the economics, Rawls is interesting also in what you said about the burden societies, because Rawls believed that aid is only necessary until the burden society becomes sufficiently developed 
that it's not preventing from becoming what he calls the decent society, which could be also the authoritarian society with a consultative regime. And at that point, aid is no longer needed. So in other words, if you are, for example, India or Sri Lanka, and you are a decent society, and maybe you are much poorer than the United States, the U.S. does not have a duty, nor is it desirable, to continue with aid, because really, and that's an interesting part for Rawls, he's very interesting, uh, I think, thinker. He believed that actually acquisitional wealth or higher income is not a value, such a value, he puts it as a primary good, but it is not as valuable as ability to have a decent society and meaningful life. So it was interesting that actually he came against aid at a certain point, which can be a relatively low income point to, to be against it. Do you consider yourself a liberal? If so, why? And if not, why not? Well, that's, that's a tricky one. Not really, actually. I was, you know, uh, you might allude actually to what I wrote. I, I was, uh, for a long time, uh, having lived in the United States, I was not particularly how should I say, aware of all the political differences. And I was always considering myself as essentially social democrat. And I believe that, uh, I believe, uh, in this past tense, that uh, Democratic Party and what is called liberals in the U.S. were some form of social democrats. But then I got disabused of that notion. I don't think that actually, I would say that in my view currently, uh, what people consider as themselves as liberal, I would actually put them very much as center-right than not, not center-left. So, no, I would not consider myself as liberal. I would much uh, more, I'm not 100% at either, but I would rather define myself as kind of old-fashioned social democrat. Uh, and actually, I like, you know, historically significant figures from that movement in Europe who were like Olaf Palme or Willy Brandt, uh, particularly Willy Brandt that actually I think admire quite a lot. That's interesting because Willy Brandt is somebody I admire a lot, which you know, has to do as well with growing up as a Jew in Germany and, and some of his role in those discussions, but also with some of his economic policies and so on. But I guess in the philosophical sense, I might argue that Willy Brandt was also a liberal. Am I splitting hairs? Do you disagree with that interpretation? You know, I, I don't know, you know, Willy Brandt's uh, total political philosophy, but of course, politically, what I really admired, first of obviously, his opposition to the Nazism and the fact that he was opposed, which then had also sort of from the general, from the political side in Germany, when he came back, it had also some drawbacks for his political career, because simply he didn't share that experience that Germans had to share, even including the bombing in the 1940s. And a significant share of Germans saw him as a traitor for having fought against the country. And then I actually, I admire his Ostpolitik, and I actually think that by, you remember that when he went to East Germany and had this famous meeting with Willy Stoff, and I think it was in Erfurt, when he appears on the balcony and uh, he gets this really huge uh, crowd who applauds him, and he does this. And I think it was actually such a strong uh, uh, message. Don't overdo things. Things will change. But if we try to overdo it, and that's actually the message to the previous part of the conversation, if we try to overdo it by 
asking too much, by pushing too much, the results could be worse. So I, I actually like the tact that he displayed. And of course, the famous case in, uh, in Warsaw, obviously, that everybody knows. And uh, by the way, I, when I say everybody knows, I have to say that I was a little bit surprised that I found some young people actually have never heard of this, of his, on him kneeling at, uh, in Warsaw Ghetto. So, which was, I think for my generation, it was uh, an event of a to a symbolic importance, uh, possibly one of the most symbolic events in after World War II. But anyway, so that was going back to liberals. So I actually, as I was saying, I, I see American liberals maybe as very dogmatic. And I'm going to try to sort of judgmental here as dogmatic and kind of center right. And um, I would even say imperialistic in foreign policy and domestically really very often honestly undistinguishable from uh, what, what you would call the center right position. What would I would call center-right So to those listeners of this podcast, certainly not every listener of this podcast, but I think many listeners of this podcast who might think of themselves in the philosophical sense as liberals, what advice would you give for how to avoid the pitfalls of liberalism? I'm really here discussing Yasha more liberal in a political sense. You mentioned Benjamin Constant before. So that was so obviously ideological liberal. And I, I think like, People like him, I'm a big admirer of Tocqueville also. Tocqueville is really definitely fits into the, 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 the liberal view of the world. But remember what I actually admire about Tocqueville. Tocqueville is able also to actually see the other side. When, when you read Tocqueville, there is always the other side. That he is not oblivious of the other side. He can understand the way of thinking of the other side. For example, when he says, you know, in 1948, when he says, we see the attacks on private property, and private property as a concept. So it could happen that actually we have nationalization, he's not using the means of production, but nationalization of capital, and that there is a strong support for ending something which seems to us to be sort of a component of liberal view, which was really property, ownership of property. So he sees a possibility of that. He doesn't say <clears throat> that people who are thinking that are criminals that would be in jail. So I, I like in Tocqueville that ability. I also have to say that I like Raymond Aron. And you would, he would, you would see him as really a direct, uh, to some extent, continuator of Tocqueville. But Raymond Aron, too, in his, okay, now I'm going too far, but in his lecture on industrial society, when he discusses the Soviet Union, he has a very good discussion because he's talking about, basically, it's another form of industrial society. It is the form of industrial society which is very similar to ours in, in the fundamental sense, but it is a society where he says you can actually criticize things, but you can, there are certain topics, like, for example, the rule of the Communist Party, that are beyond acceptable critique. So, you know, it, it, I find his, for example, critique in the sense of the discussion of the Soviet Union way superior to, for example, Hannah Arendt, you know, with totalitarianism and all of that. I actually don't think that even the term totalitarianism applies to Brezhnevite Soviet Union. I think it applies to, to the Stalinist Soviet Union, but not later. And in that sense, I find Raymond Aron, who is Typical liberal, very uh, germane to my own thinking. So 
you see there are liberals that I'm in favor, but actually, as I said, these are ideological liberals. Maybe they were also political, but um, uh, these are the ones that I actually admire quite a lot. So I guess the advice is not to fall for what I think is a particularly American malaise at the moment, the unwillingness and inability to understand your political adversary. Branko, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Yasha. It was really a pleasure. I'm so glad to be here with you. I, I wish we could do it again in person, but I think we did quite well, even virtually. Thank you very much for excellent questions and for probing and pushing them. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.